Welcome to the 2015 Baird Lecture, Understanding Cognitive Decline in Multiple Sclerosis, focusing on the hippocampus and thalamus, presented by Haneke Holst, PhD. Dr. Holst is an assistant professor of anatomy and neuroscience, Free University Medical Center, Amsterdam, Netherlands, and focuses her studies on cognitive rehabilitation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 19, 2015, at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation and the Baird Visiting Professorship Fund, provided by William T. and Camille R. Baird. I'd like to thank you all for coming to our Baird Visiting Scientist Lecture, and we're very happy to have uh, Dr. Hanukkah Holst here from Amsterdam who's going to be talking to us about her work in multiple sclerosis. So Dr. Hanukkah Hull started her studies in the health sciences at the VU University in Amsterdam, where she obtained both her bachelor's degree and her master's degree. She then joined the master's of neuroscience program at, at the VU uh, University, where she got her second master's degree. But this one was in neuroscience, with a specialization in preclinical neuroscience. Uh, during her PhD training, Dr. Hulse worked with the, uh, in, at the Imaging Analysis Center at the university as a radiology reviewer and scientific <coughs> researcher and focusing on MS. I guess that's when you first got into MS. Yep. Her PhD project was supervised by um, Professor Yaron Gertz, Professor Frederick Barkoff, and Professor Bernard, I can't say the next one. I can't say that one. <laughs> <laughs> at, the view, at, the, at the same university. And, and it's in the departments of radiology, anatomy, and neurosciences. There, her doctoral work focused on understanding cognitive decline in MS. Dr. Hurst is now an assistant professor at the Department of Anatomy and Neurosciences at that university. And she's continuing the line of work that she's doing here with specific focus on cognitive rehabilitation in MS. So that's very, uh, uh, very apropos for us. But besides being a scientist, Hanukkah writes popular scientific columns through the internet um, and, uh, and to try to talk about science to the lay public. And she's also general manager of a foundation that translates science, again, from the, the uh, public, uh, science to public using the internet. So I'm sure she's a fantastic teacher. And we're really looking forward to an incredible lecture today entitled Understanding Cognitive Decline in MS, highlighting her work on the thalamus, hippocampus, and dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Columbia Hurst. Thank you. So thank you very much, Professor Luca, for this uh, very nice introduction. Uh, it's a great honor for me to be here today uh, with a terrible jet lag, but I think the arousal <laughs> is, uh, is making that go away. When I prepared this talk, I suddenly realized that it was exactly one year ago on this particular date that I defended my PhD thesis. And therefore, I figured I'll just start the same way as I did a year ago. And I promise you, the rest will be different. So I want to do a little uh, thought experiment with you. So just imagine yourself, you're uh, at the end of the day, driving back home, walking or cycling. Cycling we do a lot in Holland. I don't know how it's here. 
uh, and you have to think of what you're going to eat. And you think you're going to make this uh, tremendous salad with uh, tuna in it and onions and a lot of lettuce and tomatoes. And you have to go to do grocery shopping because most of it is not at home available. But you also know that there are two very important things that are already out of uh, your, your uh, storage for a while, and that is butter and toilet paper, which is not very uh, unimportant, I would say. And then you're at the supermarket, and you're standing there, and you remember everything that you need for your salad, um, but you totally forgot the two different things, the two other things that were so important to take with you. And I'm just wondering, who of you recognize this situation? Can you raise your hand? So, are you all cognitively <laughs> impaired? <laughs> so when that happens once in a while, it's not a big thing. But for people with MS, this is quite common. So we know that people with MS, uh, up to 70% of all patients, will suffer from cognitive decline uh, at a certain moment during their disease. So that's what we are going to talk about today. And I, I actually split it in three different parts. So there is this part uh, on cognition in MS, which is a general introduction. And also what I will uh, try to explain to you the role of the Cray metapathology in that uh, particular setting. Then we move forward to understanding cognitive decline. And I will use uh, my work on the hippocampus and the thalamus as role models uh, to show you how uh, the search for understanding cognitive pathology or cognitive decline actually uh, went. And I'm not going to be complete, so forgive me for that. I try to be as complete as possible, but I have to make a certain uh, jump sometimes. And then uh, we end with uh, some things that we need to do and what's coming up next, and that is solving the puzzle still and cognitive rehab, which is of course not really the future, but also something that is already going on. But I think it's definitely uh, the point where we are going to gain a lot of uh, from in the coming years. So this is what is all sort of covered in the coming 45 minutes. So when we move to uh, MS and cognition, there are certain cognitive deficits that we see quite frequently. So we know, for example, that information processing speed is one of the first cognitive domains that uh, goes down and also that this cognitive slowing has, of course, an effect on all the other cognitive functions uh, patients have. We also see problems in visual memory, uh, verbal memory, and what we also know is that, for example, and I think that is for patients sometimes nice to hear, that a true dementia because of the MS is rare. So it's something uh, in between uh, the, the very severe cognitive impairment versus the more mild cognitive, uh, cognitive complaints we see. And because I am raised by radiologists, uh, more or less during my PhD, uh, I will give you a little tour into the MRI scans. Because with, uh, when we are looking at MS, there are a few things that are very common and that we know are important. And that is, uh, as we see here, these white dots is the demyelinated lesions in the brain uh, that are so characteristic for, for MS. But we also see inflammation or tissue losses here in the black uh, uh, black holes. And this is what we see on standard MRI. So if you see a patient in a clinic, this is the, these are the pictures you get. Then we have an another phenomenon, and this is the atrophy or the tissue loss. And this happens both in the white matter as well as in the gray matter. And here you can see clearly that the brain is really shrinking in MS. And this is also something that you can see on a quite standard uh, MRI scan. 
And there is also where the problem actually arises. Because if you look at these standard MRI measures as lesions and atrophy, we can only see a weak to modest correlation with cognitive deficits patients have. So actually, we cannot really use these uh, pathological features uh, to explain why some patients do have cognitive impairments and others don't. So that means that we have to look uh, at other things. And then you would wonder what else, because MS is, was for a long time a typical white matter disease, so if you cannot use these measures, uh, where do we have to look for? And that is actually uh, that something that was for a long time uh, discarded. And that's actually pathology in the gray matter of the brain. And when you look into the uh, literature, you see that already uh, early, before the 1950s, there was already the first detection of gray matter pathology in patients with MS, but people thought that was a mistake or they, were, they had some, done something wrong with their analysis. So in the 90s, there were newer techniques, especially for the tissue. So on the upper side, you see all the tissue and histopathology research. And here is the neuroimaging. So it's, it's more of a, like a timeline. And here we had uh, suddenly the availability of immunohistochemical stainings that actually were able to uh, stain the, the tissue differently. And gray matter pathology suddenly became very obviously visible in the tissue. That was an uh, impulse for the neuroimaging departments to say, well, if it's there in the tissue, then we need to do something with our scanners to make sure that we can actually detect this gray matter pathology. And the first uh, scans came available that were actually able to detect uh, pathology in the gray matter. Over the years, uh, gray matter pathology was more and more um, researched and also it was found that uh, across disease types, so from relapsing remitting to secondary progressive MS, you see a substantial increase in gray matter pathology. Um, and also you see that gray matter pathology is not uh, going hand in hand with white matter pathology, so it has a different uh, kind of um, background or underlying mechanism. In these years, also the DIR, the double inversion recovery scan, became available, and that's, that's really, I think, until now, still one of the most common MRI sequences that allows us to visualize gray matter uh, lesions in the cortex and the subcortical structures. And then it, um, in the last uh, five years after that, it became more and more um, uh, the kind of road to go to go more specific, look into specific gray matter structures, uh, looking at high fields and trying to uh, yeah, understand this gray matter pathology in more depth. And with regard to cognition, you can imagine that this gray matter might be uh, very important in understanding why patients do actually develop cognitive impairment uh, more than the pathology in the white matter. So the question now is, because 2011 was already uh, four years ago, so what happened, what happened in between? Well, there were lots of studies that used more advanced MRI techniques that are still nowadays not used in a clinical setting, but are very often used in a research setting, so diffusion tensor imaging, but also functional MRI during a task, also during rest. And uh, we, we looked at the brain in a more uh, holistic way. So look at the whole brain and look for network changes, connectivity, and even effective connectivity. You look for 
uh, how well does the brain actually communicate and maybe are these the factors that explain why some patients do get cognitive deficits and others don't. So from here, I would like to zoom in on uh, the my favorite structures of the brain, <laughs> which is uh, when we're talking about general cognition and attention, uh, the thalamus, where we're talking about visual memory, uh, the hippocampus, and I will very briefly uh, touch upon the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex uh, when we're talking about working memory. So the thalamus in MS is, uh, of course, you can imagine the thalamus is the center of the brain and it's probably therefore very prone uh, to all kinds of uh, influences and diseases, uh, disease activity, lesions and uh, the tracts that go through it. And thalamic pathology is therefore also very frequently seen in MS. And in, in the tissue, this is really like neuronal loss and demyelination. <coughs> we see atrophy. We see that clearly on MRI scans. We also see that it's different for males and females. So males are you know, most of the time more severely um, um, yeah, diseased. So you see also earlier in the disease thalamic atrophy. There are changes in the brain metabolites. So when you use MR spectroscopy, you measure changes in the thalamus on N-acetyl aspartate, which is a marker for neuronal health. There are diffusion changes within the thalamus. And all these more advanced measures of thalamic pathology actually also shows us a better correlation with physical disability and with cognition. So that already uh, indicates that going away from the lesions, looking to other structures in the brain that actually helps us to find better correlations. But they are not perfect yet, so it's not uh, a fulfilling or a complete uh, answer. So therefore, I wanted to highlight this particular study where we uh, try to go even more in depth in this, in this uh, thalamus uh, by looking at the different thalamic nuclei. Because as we all know, the thalamus can be subdivided in a lot of different uh, nuclei and they all have their own specific cort cortical outputs and input regions. Uh, so that actually also uh, shows us that damage to a specific part of the uh, specific thalamic nucle nucleus will have a different symptom dependent on the location where the, uh, the damage actually appears. So, for example, if you look at uh, this picture here, we have all the different thalamic nuclei and you see that all these different nuclei go to another region in the cortex. So, talking about cognition, we think that maybe the anterior nucleus that's actually connected uh, to the cingulate gyrus and also receives this input via the mammillary bodies of the hippocampus, this, this might be a very sp specific structure that can be impaired uh, in cognitively impaired patients. So what we actually did, we examined the different thalamic nuclei and the integrity of their associated tracts uh, by use of diffusion tensor imaging uh, and tractography. And we did that actually to see uh, if by using such a specific approach, by really going in depth to one particular brain structure and the, and the mechanism, if we can uh, add explanatory power in explaining cognitive, di cognitive dysfunction, and in this case also the neuropsychiatry, because uh, in terms of neuropsychiatric disturbances, the thalamus might also be of high importance. 
So what we did, uh, on the MRI scan, we divided the thalamus in four different parts. So we have a medial part, a posterior part, a lateral part, and an anterior part. And as you can see immediately, this is not consistent with the nuclei as we know them from an anatomical uh, or tissue segmentation. So it's far less precise. So there are lots of parts included in a part, which is necessary because of the resolution of our DTI images. So we are not able to make it even smaller. So this is the smallest you can get. And then going from there, we actually measured, uh, or we, we used tractography to find the belonging tracts to the different parts and to see if the pathology inside that particular tract would be explanatory for a particular cognitive function. If I'm unclear or if something is really bothering you by following my, uh, my story, then raise your hand and uh, more theoretical questions I can do afterwards, but it would be a pity if you cannot follow through. So don't feel uh, worried by asking questions. So um, we had uh, 73 MS patients and 18 healthy controls, and we calculated within these tracks the fractional anis anisotropy, so the directionality of water diffusion, but also the mean diffusivity, so the average diffusion that's present within that particular tract. And it's good to mention that um, we ruled all lesions out of the tract, so these are tracts uh, without lesional matter in it, and also because the tracts in MS patients might be slightly different from tracts in healthy control subjects that we weighted the value. So the more the value was, uh, the voxel was located to the middle of the tract, the more likely it is that that voxel really belonged to that particular tract and the more value it got in your analysis. And what we found is that changes in fractional anisotropy and mean diffusivity were related to cognition and to disinhibition. So from all the neuropsychiatric symptoms, disinhibition was the only symptom that actually correlated to thalamic pathology. And that was in the anterior and the posterior thalamic tracts. So the lateral and the medial tract were not related to cognitive or uh, disinhibition at all. When we put it all in a um, regression model to see what is the most important uh, predictor for using all the different uh, MRI measures we have, we found that whole brain lesion load, so the white matter lesions in the brain, do still explain part of the cognitive uh, deficits, but the MD within the thalamic tracts uh, were equally important. So you actually can add uh, yeah, variants or explained variants to your model by including or by looking at these thalamic tracts. And with regard to the neuropsychiatric symptoms, in this case, disinhibition, 18% 18, 18 of the variance was explained by the total lesion load in the tract that we also measured. So this already shows us that uh, looking in more specific terms of the thalamus, we can actually add explained variance and better understand uh, what's going on in the brain, but still these, these numbers are far from perfect, of course. So here we, we, I showed you that we went from uh, thalamus pathology in the tissue to thalamus uh, atrophy to changes in uh, correlations with uh, cognition. And if you go even in more depth and really look through the thalamus and the input and output areas that you add uh, explained variance. And then if we look 
to the other structure that I had in mind that I like a lot is the hippocampus. Uh, we can go through a sort of similar story, although this is done uh, in our own lab on all different levels and therefore I think it's a very nice example. So this, uh, this started actually during the PhD of Jeroen Geertz. Uh, he looked at tissue blocks of the hippocampus of patients with MS. Here on top we see healthy control. All the areas in brown are areas with myelin in it, so this is how it normally should look like. And here below we see an MS patient and then you can already clearly see that there are huge areas of demyelination within the hippocampus of MS patients. And these were also MS patients that had in their charts uh, most often uh, written down that they had problems with their cogni cognitive functioning. So knowing that there is something going on in the tissue actually doesn't really uh, tell us a lot what happens in FIFO in a, a live patient. So as I mentioned previously, we, uh, around 2000-2005, we actually get, got the double inversion recovery scan, which is the one on top. It's a very ugly scan, it's quite noisy, and you cannot really see a lot, because you actually suppress the signal of the white matter and the signal of the cerebrospinal fluid to be only left over with the signal in the gray matter. And if you look carefully, you can actually clearly see the hyper intensities in the cortical regions, but also very clearly up here, a hippocampal lesion. And I'm just out of curiosity, uh, how many lesions do you think on average an MS patient have in their hippocampus? Does anyone dare to shout a number? Is, is it um, 10 lesions? More than 10? Who thinks more than 10 in, the hippo in both hippocampi? 20? Is it 5? Who thinks it's uh, more than 5? 1? Is it 2 lesions? Who thinks, it's, it's, it's le who thinks there are patients without lesions in their hippocampus? You're not thinking a whole lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> So on average, uh, there are two to three lesions per patient in the hippocampus. And I was actually pretty shocked by that uh, fact because the hippocampus is not that big. It's actually a pretty small structure and we see around two to three uh, lesions per patient. So that the, the, to share that shocking effect for that I had when I heard. Zooming more into the structure itself, uh, we know from other uh, research groups that there is also atrophy in this particular hippocampus. And if you uh, scan on a high field or on a three Tesla scanner, you're actually able to uh, divide the hippocampus by different parts. And then we know that this green part, which is the cornuomonas region one, that is the part that particularly is prone to atrophy. So that's where it starts. And then it actually moves to the uh, body of the hippocampus. And quite recently, uh, we, this was replicated using a different uh, method and also showing that uh, the dentate gyrus, which is the blue part, is also involved and uh, also in children with MS. And most importantly, this atrophy is actually related to verbal learning and, and uh, spatial memory function. So that says something about how well your patient is doing. The smaller it is, the worse the performance. 
So knowing that everything goes wrong on a structural level, so how does it look and how is the shape or the, uh, the, the, the tissue itself, uh, we were also interested in how well uh, this structure is actually connected to other regions in the brain. And therefore we can use the functional, uh, rear, yeah, functional connectivity method. So we, you actually measure several regions in the cortex and in your uh, region of interest, which in our case was the hippocampus, and you just check how often the pattern or the synchronization likelihood uh, was similar. And what came out here is what we see here is uh, a resting state uh, analysis, left hippocampus, right hippocampus, and we see the healthy controls uh, both on the left side. We see here that there was trace from the left hippocampus, so the uh, correlation with itself is of course very high, so that's why it's very orange, because that <laughs> means the highest correlation. We see also a high correlation with the contralateral side of the other hippocampus, and especially a lot of regions in the brain are connected to this left hippocampus. We saw a similar pattern for the right hippocampus and as you can see from these pictures in MS patients this was quite substantially different. So what we see is that this hippocampus uh, seems to be more in, on its own uh, within the network of uh, con communication. It was shown that this pattern was even more pronounced in the patients that had hippocampal atrophy, but the ones that didn't already showed uh, these kind of patterns. So this is independent of the amount of hippocampal atrophy that's, that's present in the brain. And then another uh, step from our, yes. It was an ROI of the hippocampus. Yeah, so it was manually drawn by students because uh, drawing the hippocampus is quite a substantial uh, task to get done. So the hippocampus is also important uh, in terms of uh, neurotransmitter system, and then especially the acetylcholine uh, system is, uh, is very important in uh, signaling and also for memory function. And here we are going back to tissue. So in my colleague uh, worked on acetylcholine in control material, which means that we're non-neurological uh, patients. We had MS patients and we had Alzheimer's disease patients. And what we see here is that the uh, choline esterase transferase, which is the enzyme that actually synthesizes uh, acetylcholine, is reduced in MS patients, similar to what's happening in Alzheimer's disease. And then I think most striking is this finding that the acetylcholine esterase, so the degrading enzyme, is actually not uh, decreased in MS patients. So in Alzheimer's, you see the synthesizing enzyme as well as the degrading enzyme is uh, lowered. But in MS, only the synthesizing enzyme is decre decreased while the degrading enzyme is still intact. And I think this is very important, especially if we are looking at the work of Lauren Krupp, that actually used a lot of acetylcholine esterase inhibitors to treat memory uh, complaints or memory uh, dysfunction. What we usually do is that we take over the doses that we give to our Alzheimer's disease patients. But looking at these graphs, uh, you might consider to give a higher dose uh, because the synthesizing enzyme is actually down, but the degrading enzyme is still intact. So it will just 
get rid of the acetylcholine coli faster than uh, would be in, uh, in Alzheimer's disease patients. So it might be worth in the future to try some experiments using higher doses of acetylcholine inhibitors to treat memory uh, problems in MS. Which is of course not something that we can do easily because you get a lot of side effects and you have to do all kinds of things, but at least before we throw this down the drain because of contradicting results, uh, we might want to investigate this a little further. So knowing all these changes, uh, that was when I started my PhD thesis with one of the most important questions then. It's like, okay, it's, we see that there are differences in the hippocampus. We see there is uh, atrophy, there are lesions, there is connectivity changes, but what does it actually do to the function of the hippocampus when it, does to do, when it needs to do its job, when it needs to be uh, doing its memory function? So, um, I included uh, cognitively impaired and cognitively preserved MS patients and healthy controls. I did a memory encoding task within the scanner, so they had to look at landscape images and they had to press whether it was tropical or non-tropical. And then after half an hour they were still in the scanner, they had to indicate whether they had seen the picture before or not. And when they uh, had the correct encoding, so when they were able to uh, correctly remember the items, uh, that were the items that were in the model. Uh, to look for changes in the brain. And what we found here is uh, these are the cognitively preserved MS patients. Um, and we see in red the increased areas of brain activation during correct encoding of um, these items. <coughs> and then in the cognitively impaired patient group, we saw something that was pretty striking. And because everything you see here in blue is decreased activated. So you see uh, this whole hippocampus is uh, decreased active, while here we see that the perihippocampal areas are actually more active. So that's led us through this, the following hypothesis, which is not only due to this study, but there are lots of groups that actually showed similar things. That is namely that when there is cognitive preservation and you measure increased brain activation due to, in response to a task, that it actually uh, is able to uh, limit the amount of cognitive impairment which is indicated in the blue line. But once uh, you see decreased brain activation during the task, and that's the moment where we can start measuring this cognitive impairment. So it might be that this uh, is sort of a compensatory mechanism to prevent uh, the brain to get into uh, trouble. And then, of course, knowing that this all plays a role, we also wondered, but what of all these measures is now actually the most important to explain cognitive functioning? Is it the, the, the cortical lesions, the hippocampal lesions? Is it the activation during a task? Is it the connectivity during rest? Is it the atrophy or the shrinking of the tissue? So just curious, what would you think is the most important in explaining cognitive functioning of MS patients. Who thinks it's the atrophy? Two people? Three? Half? Who thinks it's the lesions? Nobody. Who thinks it's the connectivity during rest? And who thinks it's the activation during a task? So we're pretty clear 
These structural measures are not that important. And the functional ones are still in the race of uh, getting elected to be the most important uh, variables. So we put this in a model and we actually uh, found that both functional measures were most important. So the structural measures did disappear or did not survive these regression analyses. But we see that uh, redu reduced hippocampal acti activity in the right hippocampus was associated with a worse cognitive outcome. An increased connectivity was associated with worse cognitive outcome. And we found that males were doing worse, but well, that's maybe something we already know from daily life. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in the healthy controls, it was educational level that was most predictive of cognitive functioning. And I think this fits uh, very well in line with the cognitive uh, reserve theory that the higher you are educated, the better your cognition is. So uh, male gender is also something uh, that I mentioned previously that we see quite often in MS patients that male <coughs> patients are worse off. Um, we see also altered functional connectivity in MS, male MS patients. Decreased re task-related activation is also something we see in healthy aging. So people who age, they also get less activation during a task and increased resting state functional connectivity of the hippocampus with the posterior cingulate gyrus um, is, is part of the default mode network and therefore uh, quite prone to uh, cognitive deficits as well as uh, a marker for Alzheimer's disease. So then there's the question, what is the difference between task-related activation and resting state functional connectivity? And in this case, th these measures were not even related to each other. So we are actually looking at two independent measures um, that also probably measure something else. So it might be that the task-related activation is some local process, uh, while the uh, resting state functional connectivity is more a global alteration of the brain network and the brain me mechanics. Looking for ideas on how, to, how this could be possible, you can think maybe there's a loss of GABAergic uh, neurons, so there is uh, probably less disinhibition. Um, and maybe that activation that uh, comes into play during a task that is some local boosting uh, due to the fact that you really ask something from a specific structure. And I think that's where uh, we're currently in the fields are really uh, have to figure out what we uh, should do. And there's two papers recently came out that actually touches upon this, and that's whether we can talk about beneficial or maladaptive changes in the brain. So this is a paper from one of my colleagues who actually says, well, we shouldn't look at connectivity because once it's increased, the other time it's decreased, what does it actually all mean? For activation, it seems to be a more steady pattern, but still we don't really know what we're measuring. We should look at the brain more holistically, and we should try to make a, a, a measure of network efficiency. So the network should be efficient, and then you have uh, beneficial functioning. Um, but sin until we can do this, we should be very cautious talking about beneficial changes or maladaptive changes. And this is also something that Nancy and John uh, pointed out in their paper um, on cognitive rehab, that there are so many uh, changes and plasticity changes we see in the brain uh, that before we can talk about um, yeah, beneficial or maladaptive changes, we really need to take carefully 
And I think in the rehabilitation world, uh, that's actually more easy to find out if it's beneficial since you're trying to improve a function rather than looking at subjects over time uh, without doing any interventions. So the increased activation, although we think it's beneficial, it might not be. It might be the start of something bad uh, that's going to happen. And I think it's very uh, necessary that we get a grip on what it actually is we're seeing. So going from there and knowing that we have all these uh, yeah, nice and advanced imaging measures, there are a few things we do need to do now. And I think one thing is that we still need to continue solving the puzzle because we know uh, we learned a lot, but we are not there yet. So we have to continue <coughs> trying to understand what happens in the brain. Mm. And we should uh, use more the cognitive rehabilitation uh, to also try to understand and get a grip on the, um, on the, yeah, the brain plasticity we have and we see. So putting the still in the, in the figure, uh, I think here, the point where you see from increased activation where it turns to decreased activation, why that actually turns or why that swaps around is something we don't know. We don't know what the trigger is. Uh, so it might be nice to get a grip on this. And at the same time, trying to influence these curves or getting them more towards a healthy situation uh, that is something that we can try at least to achieve with the cognitive rehabilitation uh, work. So when I talk about continuing solving the puzzle, I think there are a few things we need to do. And uh, one of them is to do longitudinal studies. So we do have a lot of cross-sectional work, work. And there's also a few studies that looked longitudinally at changes in cognition, uh, but also with M MRI included and the advanced MRI measures, that is still in its infancy. So I think there is a huge need uh, to follow patients up over time and see how connectivity, how activation actually changes over time to get a grip on the mechanisms behind it. And of course, the relationship to, uh, with the cognitive functioning. We also should focus on confounding and protective factors. So for example, depression is something uh, that can of course uh, hamper cognitive functioning as well. So we have to take that into account and we have to see if uh, changes in the brain that we see and now dedicate to cognitive impairment might be related to, for example, depressive symptoms. Fatigue is a problem that we see quite often that influences cognition substantially. Information processing speed, as mentioned at the start, is the first problem we see and it has a tremendous effect on all the other cognitive functioning, especially when our tests are aimed or when they are timed. So you have to do a task within a certain time. If you're cognitively slow, then you're going to fail on the task, on your memory task where you have a time limit. The cognitive reserve and how we can actually, or how we could use it uh, in helping our patients be better. And also uh, sleep disturbances are something that are quite common in MS. And this is uh, work that we recently finished uh, that I would like to share with you because sleep uh, deprivation in healthy controls that goes hand in hand with reduced attention. Uh, in MS we see the same thing and also information processing speed and executive function were previously related to sleep disturbances in this disease. When you look in the sleep literature and into the brain, uh, the thalamus and the hippocampus are both the structures 
uh, that are suffering from sleep, di sleep disturbances, especially uh, in uh, studies where we have healthy controls and keep them sleep, de sleep deprived. Uh, you see changes in hippocampal activation afterwards. Actually, you see decreased hippocampal activation uh, due to sleep deprivation. And as I mentioned at the start of my talk, these were also the structures that we see most often in MS to be affected. So therefore, we choose to actually explore the relationship between uh, sleep cognition and functional connectivity of the hippocampus and the thalamus in MS patients to see if we can gain something of giving patients sleep therapy, for example, to feel better and to improve their cognition. So we had a group of 71 MS patients, uh, 24 were sleep disturbed, 40 healthy controls. It was far from perfect, the study, so it was uh, sleep disturbance based on a self-report uh, questionnaire. Uh, so it was questions like, did you sleep through the night? Did you wake up in between? And then we specifically asked whether it was due to the sleeping and not to an uh, inconsistent bladder or something MS related. So we tried to exclude that as best as we could, but cannot rule it out totally. Uh, we did neuropsychology, measures of depression, anxiety, and fatigue. And we have a structural MRI and resting state functional MRI. And based on the scores on this scale, uh, we divided the group in two groups, the MS patients with sleep disturbances and the MS patients without sleep disturbances. And when you compared their cognitive scores of these two groups, they were not significantly different. If you looked at atrophy of all the gray matter uh, regions in the brain, it was not statistically significant. So on neuropsychology, depression, anxiety, and fatigue, as well as structural MRI measures, we were not able to distinguish the sleep disturbed patients from the, the sleep intact patients. When we actually looked at the uh, connectivity analysis, we did find differences between these two groups. And there were eight connections that showed reduced functional connectivity and only with the thalamus uh, and certain regions of the brain. So we had the left thalamus uh, with the cingulate cortex and the mi middle frontal gyrus that showed reduced connectivity. And there were six other regions from the right, right thalamus with parts in the brain, also the cingulate cortex. So that actually shows us that there is something going on in sleep-disturbed MS patients that is independent, or at least seems independent from cognitive, cognitive problems. So if there's a this was the question, is there a relationship between sleep disturbances and cognition? And we couldn't find it in our study. It might be because all these patients were approximately 12 years uh, after their disease uh, diagnosis that there is already so much uh, substantial damage to the hippocampus and the thalamus that that is primarily causing the cognitive deficits and it doesn't really matter if you sleep well or if you sleep good uh, because the pathology itself is causing uh, the cognitive problems. What we did see was that sleep disturbances were related to the subjective cognitive uh, problems patients experienced. So the objective measures were not related, but the subjective measures were, were related to, each, to the sleep disturbances, which is in line with uh, other, other studies we've seen. So this is something that we should keep in mind. And also looking at the connectivity direction, so normally we see a lot of increased connectivity 
going hand in hand with worse cognition, while this sleeping connectivity pattern show decreased activity. So there is something going on with sleep in the brain, which we might want to explore further. And also what we can also do in a more sophisticated way than just measuring uh, with a questionnaire. Besides all this, I think we can also still continue to focus on other systems and try to get a grip on that. So uh, we're currently working on an, a paradigm with emotional processing and focusing on the amygdala in patients with MS. And together with, uh, or actually Katja is working on the striatum. And I think uh, looking into the striatum and the interaction with cognitive performance and fatigue especially uh, might help us to understand it a little further. And then to the point where I actually figured when I was making this talk, I don't, I don't dare to touch this in a group of cognitive rehab people. So who am I to speak <coughs> about cognitive rehab? And at the same time, I figured it's nice because I really would like to start up cognitive rehab studies. So now you're all here. You might, he might help me uh, on the right route. Cognitive rehab is something that's uh, already going on for a long time. So it's not really the future, but I've, I put it in the future because I think this is where we really need to move forward to. And for a long time, there were lots of problems with the cognitive rehab study. They were e either sample size were too small or the wrong patients were trained. So if you're using a memory training program and your patients have no, no impairments on that specific domain, then there's nothing to train really. There were also some uh, fascinating studies that actually show in MRI, using MRI changes after the treatment. And I think one of the best studies came out here where we had a real RCT showing that a mem story memory telling technique actually helps patients and also still six months later uh, you see positive effects uh, for the performance of these patients. So we tried something as well in Amsterdam. You know, we didn't want to uh, stay behind. So we did something uh, cognitive rehab-wise on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. So what we did, uh, we used an MBEC working memory task in patients with MS. And this is how others showed it. So cognitively preserved patients show more activation than the impaired patients. And we figured maybe we should use transcranial magnetic stimulation to actually stimulate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and to see uh, if that can actually boost the working memory performance. This is a very, a very small sample, so it's really a pilot study where we included 70 MS patients and 11 healthy controls. We had three sessions, a baseline session, a session where we actually stimulated them and a session where we gave a sham stimulation and uh, we randomized the order. And what we actually saw was after the real stimulation, uh, we saw increased activation, and it's very tough to see, uh, on the contralateral side of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which we didn't see after the sham stimulation. So it seems that something is happening after stimulation with RTMS, uh, or repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, that works towards more activation uh, in the contralateral side. The funny part was that the accuracy of the MBEC task um, in the scanner also improved after the real stimulation and not after the sham stimulation. So th the 
accuracy at baseline was similar between healthy controls and MS patients. And after the, stim the real stimulation, MS patients improved. Um, and we see higher activation uh, on, an, yeah, on the same region on the other side of the brain. And I think this is something that I want to be very careful with, but there might be some beneficial potential in this technique. I do have to admit that our patients uh, were all cognitively intact, and that was because uh, the TMS itself can cause epilepsy. When patients have a lot of cortical pathology, uh, that can also cause epilepsy. So all patients with a high cortical lesion load were excluded from participation. And these are also the ones that have more cognitive problems. So the ones that we selected were actually <coughs> the best patients, and therefore it's, it's a pity, I think, that we couldn't really... Uh, no, it was high frequency. Yeah. Do you see increased activation on the ipsilateral side, the side that you were stimulating? No, just, just, just contralateral. Yeah. <coughs> so to give a little insight, um, what we are also trying in Amsterdam, so we are uh, currently investigating the effects of uh, Fingolimod on cognition uh, compared to other first-line medications. So Fingolimod in Amsterdam is a second-line therapy. It's different, I think, here in America, but uh, in Holland we are a second-line. Uh, second line. Um, and we are looking at the differences uh, in cognitive in cognitive terms, but also on MRI measures, uh, functional connectivity and task activation. We're doing, oh, and then it stopped. It went so well. What's happening? Well, I cannot blame, uh, I cannot blame anyone. Well, I think my computer froze for whatever reason. Yeah, it's just frozen. Frozen. Um. Nothing? No. Well, I I'll, I was almost I was almost there. So what we're also doing in Amsterdam is an, um, an attention training program. So we have two patient groups, uh, one half attention deficits, the others won't. And they uh, get a laptop with them uh, for, to take, it, take with them to home. And they have to train seven weeks, one hour a week. And they train all the different domains of attention. So it's sustained attention, divided attention, um, uh, switching attention mode so you have to imagine it's sitting in a car you're driving you get all the, uh, uh, the, the 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 things on the on the road and you have to form words and they have to indicate whether it's an existing word or not they also have to do calculating things so they see numbers and they have to say whether the sum really is correct or incorrect they have to do similar things but then uh, they're uh, gasoline actually empty, so they have to see the gasoline emptying and they have to fill it up by pressing the spacebar. And they have the, f the, the version where uh, the sports program on the radio suddenly starts to talk and they start to give all the football out outcomes uh, while they have to make the calculations and they have to, to check the gasoline. So it's uh, over the weeks it becomes more and more difficult. 
And also here, we are trying to uh, figure out a way uh, to see if, if their intention improves and if, if the attention improves, if other cognitive function improve with that. And if this is different for the ones that have problems in that domain versus the ones that don't. Additionally, we have um, a dancing program. So in January, we start uh, dancing with patients with MS, uh, which is uh, a modern classical ballet mix. And it's really based on the fact that they are moving. Uh, so they have a physical exercise component. And there is a lot of emphasis on the cognitive part. So it's really uh, choreography. So they have to pick an apple from the tree, put them in a the basket. Then they have to say hi to their neighbor and they have to walk around and every week this choreography becomes more and more difficult and uh, we are just, they are dancing twice a week, an hour per time, so two hours a week for eight weeks in a row and we do um, measurements at the start, physical measurements, cognitive measurements, also MRI and spectroscopy of the thalamus, hippocampus and cerebellum to see if we see changes in brain metabolites uh, in response to this training program. Um, a little bit out of scope, I think we have a problem, uh, a project running on depression. Uh, so depressed MS patients, uh, we scan them at start. They get an online cognitive behavioral therapy, which is normally face-to-face, -face, but we do it online to actually save them their energy. And uh, there we also look at uh, the changes after the online cognitive behavioral therapy and then with a specific focus uh, yeah, on the amygdala and emotional processing uh, to see if the uh, online therapy also has a biological underpinning for being successful. Then I wanted to end uh, with the same slide as I did last year during my PhD defense, which is the same slide as the starting slide, but then with a different text in it that I hope that one day we will be able to treat cognitive impairments in MS. Uh, because I think that's the goal where we should go for. And of course, I couldn't do all this work uh, without my colleagues in Amsterdam, uh, we, who were all on a slide, but they are not very nice to look at anyway, so you <laughs> miss, miss not a thing. So that's uh, what I prepared for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, okay, I'm sure we have some questions. Um, right. You, you talked about uh, doing this application on thalamus. Um, we know that uh, um, we really don't get a lot of contrasting images in thalamus uh, in MRI. So you basically uh, segmented thalamus uh, uh, into four different regions, and based on which region uh, you make that segmentation and. Uh, yeah, so um, we did not segment on, the, uh, on a subject basis. We used a Morel Atlas, which is an atlas based on a tissue. So it's really histo histologically uh, defined regions uh, and they are in MRI space. Uh, we use that in the healthy subjects and that's how we actually segment the regions, the four regions of the thalamus. So we didn't use our own images to really cut it into four. So it's atlas based that we uh, selected the four regions. Yeah, and we did that on a T1 weighted, uh, 3D T1 weighted image. 
So you mentioned this notion of cognitive reserve, and it's really curious to me because it's also mentioned in uh, research on dementia, for example. And that's the idea that some people, um, even in light of neurological damage, can resist um, showing cognitive decline by potentially using some compensatory strategies. And my question is whether, do, do you see this in MS where you can compare two scans to people that, and, and one is showing a lot of damage but not really showing a lot of cognitive decline? And whether, um, you know, there's something about uh, MS patients that, that have this cognitive reserve that, um, that can differentiate them? Yeah, so what we see is um, we have this quite clear clinically clinical par uh, radiological paradox. So we do have patients with a lot of pathology that are doing fine on all levels. So uh, sometimes you see a scan before you see the patient and then I, I would yeah, expect the patient to come in in a wheelchair and it actually walks in, not, not jogging yet, but almost. So there is something going on and in, uh, in terms of cognitive reserve. I think it's more difficult because the correlations between pathology and, and cognition are of course weaker than uh, for physical problems. And I think that uh, in terms of, of uh, cognitive reserve that you just have during your lifetime, during your studies, you made more connections and therefore if one connection fall, falls out of the network, it doesn't really matter. Uh, because there are lots of other options to take and if, if that's less developed or if due to uh, less cognitive uh, triggering then you're more prone to actually suffer from a single change. That's what I think happens. Does that come through on the functional connectivity? I really, I, I haven't looked at it so specifically myself so that should be so, I, I should try to look at it. I have to say that uh, most of our research subjects are higher educated, so I, uh, there might be a slight bias in our sample. So I don't know if we could really distinguish between uh, people with a lot of cognitive reserve versus uh, fewer, and then look at the scans. Would be something to keep in mind, though. Yeah. So uh, on the sleep study, uh, the difference you found on the connectivity between uh, individuals with sleep problems and individuals without sleep problems in MS. Uh, is it the same patterns that you find in healthy controls with sleep to prevent and not? Yeah, it's a very good question. We had three healthy subjects with sleep disturbances, so <laughs> I couldn't check for that. So uh, actually that's also what you expect in a healthy control sample. You wouldn't expect a lot of uh, problems. So uh, that is the difficulty also in sleep studies. Uh, that when, when they report outcomes, it's most of the time that they keep people sleep deprived, which is of course far from the uh, natural situation where people for months in a row sleep uh, badly. So uh, I cannot answer your question. It could be interesting to see if the sleep problems affect more individuals with MS. Yeah. In contrast with healthy controls, because I assume that also the healthy control will be affected if you have sleep, <coughs> if you have sleep problems, even if you are healthy control, you might have some problems, but probably in a less extent. Yeah. I have a question about <coughs> compensatory activation. So oftentimes in MS studies, you know, you find that, that they have more activation on the contralateral side um, than healthy controls. And some people say it's compensation. Um, but you've actually induced it with your TMS study. You induced activation on the contralateral side. And you and they performed better when they did that. Yeah. So I was wondering what your thoughts were about, about that. Yeah. I, 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 I have 
I doubt it whether I, sh I should show you the data because I, I'm still in doubt I, because it's a small group. We did saw it, we saw improvement, but we didn't saw improvement in the healthy controls after sham stimulation, or after real stimulation, because mm -hmm. if it would be something that you can improve, then you would have seen it in the healthy control subjects as well, or I would expect to see it. I do think that because they improve, the extra activation is something beneficial, so the improvement, and I think uh, this might also be related towards if you do something to improve, also going to a sports school, for example, you induce something uh, to actually become better. So it depends on if you see it in response to a rehab uh, kind of program versus when you see it in a natural setting without any prior. So in this case, I think it is beneficial activation. So I was going to ask you a similar question because I keep getting this question asked of me all the time. So I figured you could answer it. So a lot of times people show increased activation is associated uh, with worse performance, not better performance. And yours, you were in, in, in hippocampus, you were showing decreased performance was associated with worse performance, right? Decreased act, fMRI activation in hippocampus. Um, but people often times say that this increased activation is compensation. And if the increased activation is associated with worse performance, my first question is, how can that be compensation? Yeah, I've got that question before. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> time, then I get the second part, too. We have, so, um, because we, we don't know, of course, what's going on, but assuming that it's compensation, um, it might be when you still see it in worse performance that it's a kind of rest it's a, a, a last part of the compensation that was ongoing and if you would follow up these patients up you would see it turn. So some kind of late, com late unsuccessful compensatory mechanism. Um, that's how we made the interpretation, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure either. Yeah, well I'm not sure I, I think about it as maladaptive because if you're going to increase, if you're going to show increased activation and associate worse performance, it's not compensatory. No, but I think uh, I agree with you, and I think uh, in the sense that uh, every change is maladaptive in itself. So even though when I published this study, I thought it was beneficial because I saw in the group that was still doing well, increased activation, and I figured, well, that probably helps the brain to perform normally. Um, now, a few years later, I think uh, probably the fact that the brain has to start working harder is maladaptive in itself, and it might also attract a lot of, uh, for example, glutamatergic activity, which in the end uh, actually kills the tissue uh, if it continues. So therefore, I think we really, really need to figure it out. But at the same time, what I say to you, if you do this in, um, if you see this in reaction to a rehab method, whether that's TMS medication or a behavioral intervention, I think it's, it's different. That's the second part of my question. So the second part of my question I always get asked is, well, if increased activation is not good, and your rehab studies show increased activation, and that increased activation is associated with better performance, how do you explain the two? Well, I think it, this is something that we call training, that we know from the sports school. If you go to the sports school, you train and you get better, and you see also more muscle mass. So in terms of brain training, I think if you really train the brain, there can become more activation that actually is beneficial, but is not 
uh, maladaptive or not glutamatergic in itself, but uh, I might be mistaken well, about you know, that. Yeah, I think that's the point that people keep asking me. I mean, it's a simplistic, it's, 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 it's making a, a complicated problem simple. But if you say increased activation has been associated with worse performance and rehab is associated with increased activation, something doesn't make sense from that very simplistic way of thinking. Yeah. And I think that's one of the answers is too simplistic and we don't really understand it. And that I agree. I think, you know, the increased activation might happen early in the disease. Uh, it might be beneficial, but later in the disease, I think it's not. That's yeah. sort of working hypothesis. And that's why I think we should do these longitudinal follow-up studies to see what, especially on the activation and connectivity uh, part, because we have follow-up data on lesions, we have follow-up data on uh, atrophy, but we miss the data on the more advanced techniques. I just I wanted to add to that. Um, so I think it really depends on what baseline you're comparing to. So if you're comparing MS patients to healthy controls, yes, they're performing worse. But maybe um, their baseline is, is somewhere else. And relative to that baseline, they're, they're showing that increases in activity may be beneficial. So I'm, I'm not sure if that's a really fair comparison between healthy controls and MS. Yeah, so I was thinking a similar thing. So if I ask you to walk across the room and I time you, you'll, you'll do it in some amount of time. If you step on a nail first, so you're holding your leg, and I ask you to do it, you might hop across the room. You'd have a lot of act extra activa activation in your contralateral leg. You get across the room, you do worse, but you get the job done. Right. Um, and so is that extra activation in your contralateral leg, is that maladaptive is that it's associated with worse performance but it's allowing you to get the job done well if you got there slower then I would say it was <laughs> okay <laughs> anyway other questions thoughts yes Denise this is a very small question but um, the first study you presented you presented um, uh, data for the DTI you presented um, functional anisotropy and um, I did consider it. I um, I didn't look at it because <coughs> in the end we had so many tests and so many measures that due to uh, multiple comparison problems I couldn't analyze it. But I also think in terms of, um, because then you're pointing towards a neuronal versus a demyelination, demyelination problem, uh, that I think the evidence for either or is still under debate anyway. So I figured the mean divisivity and the FA are covering uh, the biggest part of the message. But I, I agree that in the ideal situation, I would have looked at that as well. Yeah. Right. one more question. Uh, in your, one of your studies, you Uh, 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 
PMS. Um, but so, so how how specific it is it to MS that you see the correlation between the function and connectivity associated with uh, with cognitive functions in my MS? How specific to MS? This uh, if you talk about the lesions or demyelination lesions, and then okay, this is the characteristics uh, uh, mark for 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 MS patients, and there are uh, and you can really see that in the heart. But uh, when you're talking about the functional connectivity, uh, how specific is that for MS? That's a very good question. Uh, where I don't have the answer to, um, unfortunately. I do think, however, because the uh, structural pathology is so clearly present, I would have assumed that that would come up as one of the main things. For example, hippocampal atrophy, if the tissue is really gone, I would expect that that would be one of the main predictors. Um, but in the end, it isn't true. So in a sense, we see, uh, or this study shows us more or less that the the network and uh, the co in communication between regions in the brain, that that is probably uh, what, what it's all about. So whether that's specific for MS or whether we see that in all different diseases, uh, it might be that it's for everybody the same, that the network is simply more important than structural damage because if the connectivity is well organized, even in the presence of pathology, you can still function well. Uh, that might be not so specific for MS at all. At least that's my thought. Um, did you have? Did you see any correlation between uh, hippocampal atrophy and, and depression in your subjects? I haven't looked at it. The only thing I know in my sample sizes, or in my sample, is that uh, all patients were uh, under the level of a major depressive disorder, and uh, also for the cognitively impaired ones and the preserved ones, there were no differences. So I didn't really look further in that, but I will definitely do that in the. Uh, depression study that we're running currently. So Hanukkah, if I remember correctly, uh, in the hippocampal study, the uh, decreased functional, uh, the decreased fMRI and increased connectivity, the worst performance was in males than in females? Yeah, males were worse. Why? Why are males worse? Well, um, there is an hypothesis that it has something to do with uh, estrogens. So in a sense that what we see in females is that when they, for example, are pregnant, they have no relapses. So there is a, a certain kind of protective function of certain levels of hormones. Uh, so therefore, I think uh, the exact relationship is not known yet. I think there are people in LA looking at that. But uh, I think in a sense that uh, males are simply, uh, due to their hormonal setting, more prone to attacks of MS. Why? I don't know, but, but I think it has MS to be is some. More common in females. Yeah, but when females get it, they get it less less severe. So there has to be there has to be a hormonal component. I cannot imagine it has, has to do with something else. But I have to. Uh, I don't know. My my last question for me is why fingola mode? We also look at Tysabri. Oh. <laughs> Well, um, Tysabri started, uh, uh, is, uh, this is, these are the projects that I'm supervising. So uh, Tysabri already started a few years ago. So they are ongoing and they are in the three-year, four-year follow-up. And Fingolimod was new when I started this study. So it was just an opportunity, the first oral treatment 
uh, and that we started and uh, we're currently also looking uh, to, to do the same thing in Tecfidera. So it's, it's not particularly, it's more to get an impression on uh, are there certain medications that might be better for cognitive uh, functions than others. Uh, yeah, so no particular, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well we want to thank you so much for that great lecture, we appreciate it, thank you. Thank you.